Welcome to the Crystal Clear Podcast with Weekly Standard founder and editor-at-large, Bill Crystal. I'm Eric Felton. Bill, welcome to the podcast studio. Thanks, Eric, and happy Thanksgiving. Happy ahead of, Thanksgiving ahead of time. To you. Yeah, as we close the magazine to. here on Wednesday, hardworking while our spouses slave away in kitchens, Ooh, I suppose. Turkey and stuffing and, and grandma's carrots. The, that's, the Felton household is not complete at Thanksgiving without pickled carrots that my grandmother pickled used to carrots. make. Pickled carrots, well. Yeah, kind of a pickled carrot dish. Yeah, everyone has their own sort of quirky Thanksgiving customs. It's a nice holiday that way because it is the most, don't you think, family-oriented holiday. I mean, it's the, I guess Christmas has some of this, but I'm, I'm Jewish, but the, it's a meal basically around a table with family, so it has all these family-specific customs in addition to the national meaning of it. Yeah, and and what better family traditions are there than food, which can capture uh, a whole history of your your family going back decades and if not hundreds of years? Surely the Feltons, though, have special uh, cocktails. I mean, you're an expert on this. I mean, you can't just have a, the, what the rest of us have, a normal glass of white wine or red wine or even champagne. No, there there is a, a cocktail that we have every Thanksgiving and only at Thanksgiving, and it's made with um, this sweet, fizzy Italian red wine, Brachetto de Key, some sweet vermouth, but, but kind of a heavy, bitter sweet vermouth, and um, orange bitters. And it's very simple to make, which is good when you have a house crowded with people to make cocktails for, um, but it's delicious. I'm impressed. I think we'll just turn this... Uh podcast around, and instead of talking about whatever serious topics you plan for us to talk about, I should just interview you on the on Thanksgiving dinners, the cooking. <laughs> but that's an interesting cocktail. Is that actually your own invention, or is that an Italian cocktail or an American cocktail? It's an invented cocktail, really excellent bartender. I can't even remember who it was because it was years ago. Okay, well, I'm going to write this down as soon as the podcast ends and bring it home. And But you follow it with wine. This isn't your only... Yeah, you know, this is just before before everybody sits down to dinner. Excellent. We'll, we'll so. try that ourselves tomorrow. If, okay. if we have the, make it, the fixings for it, which I suspect we don't since they seem a little exotic for yeah. someone like me who doesn't have a Felton-size, <laughs> you know, liquor cabinet. It is, it is commodious, <laughs> so... All right. Well, let's um, let's talk about some serious stuff for for a moment. Um, perhaps a a foreign policy edition of the Crystal Clear podcast. Um, the big news internationally is that finally, some twenty five years after his crimes, Ratko Mladic, uh, Serbian general, has been found guilty and sentenced to life in prison by the uh, International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. And to which I can say, you know, good riddance to bad trash. But on the other hand, 25 years. Yeah, I mean, these international courts, I'm not dogmatically opposed to them. And I think they can do they can be useful in individual cases, perhaps, if they're set up for an individual uh, times to sort of resolve particular issues, punish particular people. But it is not, um, yeah. Watching this, the length of time this took, and the degree to which hundred other people got away with war crimes, and then this one guy, and I'm happy he's convicted, of course, and uh, is 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 punished. It does make you wonder about the utility of this whole kind of UN-related uh, superstructure of 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 international tribunals. I'm pretty dubious about their ultimate efficacy. They tend to ca- catch the people, incidentally, who have been defeated. 
in a war, in a civil war, and therefore are, of course, available to be caught. The ones who get away with it for decades and are still in power are not brought before uh, uh, international courts, obviously. And, and that could create some, uh, some bad incentives. Yeah, you want these guys to give up power, and sometimes it's a useful bargaining tool that they can go live in some other country, you know, in peace, more or less, for, for the rest of their lives. And you sort of hate to let them do that. They, everyone should be punished according to his just desserts, but that's not always practical in the real world. And there's also the UN problem that, you know, when you look at the crimes committed um, by the Serbs against Bosnian Muslims, um, the Bosnian Muslims, some 8,000 men and boys who were, were murdered, were uh, at least supposedly under the protection of the blue-helmeted UN troops. You know, that's a very good point. I, I remember that happening in 95. And um, the UN in general, I mean, there are sort of theological, you might say, objections to the UN. I share some of those too. We don't like world government. We think sovereignty is a sounder basis on which to organize. And then they let nations organize themselves and make alliances and so forth. Um, but there's also just a very practical objection to the UN, which is, does it actually save lives? Does it actually minimize genocide or slaughter or injustice? And I think it's very much of a question. There's a real moral hazard. I, I noticed this remember when the Sudan was a huge issue. And I've always been an advocate, obviously, for, well, not obviously, but I've always been an advocate for fairly aggressive uh, U.S. international action, including humanitarian intervention at times. And, um, and in the Sudan, people like me who wanted us to do more, uh, oh, no, it's before the U.N. Security Council. Well, it's nice that it's before the U.S. Security Council, but are they doing anything about it? And basically, they debated it for years, passed some resolutions for years, and nothing much happened. And it, occurred, it really struck me at the time how much the U.S. Security Council isn't just ineffectual. It actually is an excuse which allows people to avoid taking responsibility. At the end of the day, there are cases where the U.S. in particular has to intervene if a slaughter is to be stopped. And if you can tell yourselves, well, I'm sorry, it's before the U.N. Security Council, it makes it easier not to face up to the choice of either you're intervening, which will be tough, obviously, in other ways, or you're not intervening and letting the slaughter go on. So the U.N. Security Council has become a kind of blanket that sometimes obscures the fact that people are making moral choices, either of commission or omission. Um, and it, it's actually a kind of moral hazard that, that things get referred there and then nothing happens. It's too good an excuse for nations to avoid acting responsibly, I think. And I think that's generally true of the U.N. I, I, I'm a pretty radical critic of the U.N., uh, having just looked at it over the years, I'm very dubious of the things it accomplishes. Most of those could be accomplished through various uh, treaties that don't require the UN structure, agreements, negotiations, and so forth. And the structure itself strikes me as, as causing or permitting as much harm as it does as it does good. And we saw in the former Yugoslavia that uh, the carnage didn't end until the U.S. led a NATO coalition to do something about it. And at the end of the day. If you want a decent world out there, American leadership, including a willingness to, to you know, use force, is necessary. There's just no substitute for it. Doesn't mean we shouldn't be in everywhere. Doesn't mean we shouldn't get allies to go with us or do some of the work for you know, go ahead of us at times if it's a regional matter that they can handle. I'm, I'm for all of that, but it's a big evasion to say I we want a more peaceful world and we want to stop all this slaughter. But gee, the U.S. can't be the world policeman. Well, just like in you know, local communities. You can get lucky. You could have an area that's not that's lightly policed, and because people get along well, or they have good internal restraints, or there's a kind of balance of power, you don't need a policeman. But at the end of the day, it's a lot safer to have police a policeman than not. We don't have to be the only one. We shouldn't be a, a you know a 
gratuitous one. We shouldn't. We've got to be obviously somewhat careful in expending resources. But uh, I don't really think there's any substitute for, for for that. America's willingness to assume at least some aspects of that role. Is there a greater role? Do you think for one of the other places where strange things are are happening, uh, which is the Gulf region? the growing conflict between Saudi Arabia and Iran playing out in, the, in, in all sorts of strange ways, the, perhaps the most recent being the uh, uh, resignation while in Saudi Arabia of Lebanese Prime Minister Saeed Hariri, who then, when he got back to Lebanon, unresigned. Right. I mean, I'm no expert on this. Elliot Abrams has written well for, for the magazine and for the website on this, and others have as, uh, as well. Um, I would say one hopes uh, this is sort of an ev- piece of evidence. I think, though, that when it's when it's when the U.S. seems to be withdrawing, one hopes that regional actors can step up. Maybe there can be a balance of power. They can check each other, but they're not very good at it usually, and they often end up doing things that are in their narrow interest. The U.S. has an ability as the great power in the world to step back and act a little bit. We act in our own interest, God knows, uh, and sometimes in our narrow and selfish interests, but but also we're able a little bit to act on behalf of kind of the system, as it were, of the uh, of keeping things stable, keeping the peace, uh, preventing slaughter. Um, you know, the Saudis have carried the fight against Iran and Yemen, and my sense is, again, I'm certainly just, you know, know a little from reading the, reading the media about this, but uh, sense is that it's been pretty horrible and the humanitarian crisis there is pretty real. And, you know, it, it, it seems like the U.S. is being restrained and we're, 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 we're fighting, we're, we're, we're using less force. But the ultimate effect of it often is that more force total is used and more people are killed. So let's turn to a happier topic, which is Thanksgiving, which we touched on before. Right. And perhaps while people are listening to the podcast, they're busy uh, making pumpkin pies and uh, otherwise preparing for Thanksgiving. I was struck over the last couple of days on uh, listening, as I, I, I hate to admit it, but you know, listening to NPR, heard multiple pieces, multiple discussions about how tormented NPR listeners were at the prospect of having to talk politics with the deranged uncle who would be at the table, who would be a Trump supporter. And, um, and it got me thinking that well, maybe Thanksgiving isn't really a time for having political discussions at all. Perhaps there are other things one could talk about profitably, whether it's the infield fly rule <laughs> or whether maybe it's a discussion of whether Charlie Parker or Johnny Hodges was the greater jazz alto saxophone player. Um, or maybe even think about a little gratitude about what the holiday is about in some way. Well, that would be nice. Yeah, I'm struck reading all these articles and listening to... Uh, and uh, radio uh, that an awful lot of people have an awful lot of relatives that they really have trouble sitting at the table with for an hour and a half or two. I Maybe I've just been lucky. I guess I have been very lucky in my life and don't agree with all my relatives and everything. Obviously, one gets along, get better, feels more kinship with some than with others or one's, you know, not just relatives but in-laws and so forth. But um, really, I've been lucky that never kind of approach, I don't think I've ever really approached a holiday with dread that some uncle or cousin or something would be there, you know, saying things I just couldn't possibly tolerate. But I think one reason is we tend to shy away from too much politics and sports and movies and uh, music, and there are a million things one can talk about in this big, great country of ours. And one thing one could talk about is gratitude, as you say, and 
You know, it's good. To, it's interesting to talk to recent immigrants about that, I find. Mm. Uh, you know, we get so, you grow up here, and of course, you know, this is worse than it used to be, and God, can you believe that we have this guy as president, and what about this part of our social structure is collapsing, and the culture is not what it was in this area. But, you know, if you come in from abroad, and you're, you're coming especially from a, a not a free country, or not a prosperous country, or a country that's driven with civil wars, and, and so forth, uh, people see pretty quickly how great it is to be in not just a wealthy country, but a free country and a reasonably peaceful country, uh, a country where there is a rule of law. And so that's good to be reminded of that. And uh, maybe if you don't have someone who's a recent immigrant at your Thanksgiving dinner table, and I don't suppose we do either, at least uh, you know read some accounts like that of, of, of people or talk to someone who you know uh, at work or elsewhere who's got that attitude. I mean, it really is, it's a good reminder. There's a lot of great readings that are related to Thanksgiving, as with the other American holidays. Leon Cass and Amy Cass and Diana Schaub have this book, but it's also a website, What So Proudly We, we Hail. So if you just Google whatsoproudlywehail.org, uh, you will find um, a lot of things. But one thing is a, sort of a little ebook, almost, a little website, I guess you'd say, uh, for each holiday. So if you go to Thanksgiving, you get some poetry that's Thanksgiving-related. You get Thanksgiving proclamations. You get essays and articles, uh, you know, more sort of serious speeches and essays about Thanksgiving, some fiction that's Thanksgiving-themed. It's really a f- uh, interesting, uh, and there's some, also some discussion and commentary by, by Leon and Amy and Diana, and uh, it's really an interesting way to sort of think about these holidays. We tend to take them for granted, obviously, and uh, enjoy the food and all that, but don't think a little bit about what they mean. Thanksgiving, I think we may have discussed this before July 4th. Thanksgiving and July 4th, I've always thought of the two the two great American holidays, really, and, and they are kind of bookends of one another. July 4th, Independence Day, is sort of we, you know, fought to be free, all men are created equal, very much the holiday of kind of political independence, you might say, or to be fancier about it, kind of human, human assertion, human taking charge, humans taking charge of their fate, uh, setting up a free, free, a free uh, regime, a republic, a free self-government. Uh, Thanksgiving, sort of the flip side, the acknowledgement of the limits of human power, perhaps gratitude towards, towards God, and 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 for this, for things that we don't really deserve, because whatever, however admirable our forefathers were, we didn't do that much to create this free government, and most of us didn't do that much, honestly, to even keep it going. So. I think America's interesting in that way that no one attended this. Obviously, these holidays come out of different, you know, just traditions and events. But I do, I've always thought July 4th and Thanksgiving are sort of a nice, uh, as I say, bookends for kind of how to think about, about politics. And they also function as bookends as being one, 4th of July, is a sort of statement of civic identity, whereas Thanksgiving is a, a statement of familial identity. And in a Burkean sense, those two really go together. They, they, they're in harmony, the, the little platoons of family that lead to uh, the neighborhood, the larger community, and the nation as a whole. Yeah, very much so. I think that's very, very right. July 4th is not a—I mean, there are picnics or whatever, but July 4th is the you know, parades, the civic holiday, Thanksgiving, the family holiday. Well, Bill, have a wonderful Thanksgiving. You too, and, uh, Eric. I'll get you the cocktail recipe. Well, uh, we should we should probably put it up on the website. You know, we should, let's do that. Let's do that. So okay. That would be that would be well worth doing, and that way I can follow it uh, early tomorrow morning <laughs> as I'm mixing away. Excellent. Well, thanks so much for joining us for the Crystal Clear Podcast. I'm Eric Felton. Happy Thanksgiving.